So I want to ask the question this morning, have you ever been betrayed by someone? Do you know what I mean by that? Have you ever been stabbed in the back? Have you ever been hurt by someone? Perhaps not a close friend, but someone that you expected to be on your side. Someone who you thought you could trust. Perhaps it's not even a person. Perhaps it's an organisation or a system that you expected to support you. But actually, in the end, it let you down. The usual way that you can tell is that if those things happen to you, you're tempted to harbour a grudge. Now, we're good Christians, aren't we? We we don't speak in those things. We don't harbour grudges, do we? Well, let me tell you how Christians put it. We put it, well, I don't harbour a grudge. I just will never trust them again. I don't harbour a grudge. It's just sensible to protect yourselves, isn't it? I don't harbour a grudge. But, you know, once bitten... That's how we put it, isn't it, as Christians? We don't harbour grudges, we just do those other things. But really, what we're doing is harbouring grudges. But it's easy to see why, isn't it? Betrayal is hard. It's not something that we like to talk about. It's not something that we have in our general conversation, is it? But here it is in the section of the Psalms that we're looking at. David has been betrayed. Do you see that there in verse 0? When the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? We read it in the passage, didn't we, that they'd gone and betrayed David. But the shocking thing about our passage this morning isn't so much the theology, but the geography. To understand what we're talking about here, we need to get our heads around the geography. Who are the Ziphites? Where are they from? What has that got to do with David? Well, let me show you a map. I hope you can uh, see it okay. Uh, We have Bethlehem up here. That's where David was born. We've got Ziph, which is where the Ziphites are from. And then this whole area here in red, that's Judah. That's the southern kingdom at this time when David was alive. So actually Ziph is actually in his own country... But not only his own country, it's in his own clan. His own clan had betrayed him to Saul of Gibeah from the tribe of Benjamin, which is way uh, further up up here, Gibeah in Benjamin. So actually, David has been stabbed in the back by the very people he would have expected to protect him. And remember, if you were listening in the account, David has done nothing wrong. Saul is hunting him down because of jealousy. And now David's hiding place is exposed. He's in trouble. So this psalm is written in the face of that trouble. We get three psalms placed close together here where David is betrayed. Each gets more personal. Betrayed by a foreigner, betrayed by a fellow countryman, and betrayed by a friend. Well, this is the fellow countryman. This is the people he was expecting to support him. And it provides us with a model of how do we face trouble. And it also does more than that as well. But our first point is when trouble comes. When trouble comes. Let me read to you verse 1 again. O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. The Ziphites are on the way to uh, betray him. Saul is on the way to kill him. Where does David look for rescue? Where does he go to find his security? Where does he expect his salvation to come from? His own strength, his military prowess, his mighty men, as they call him, that he's got with him. No, David turns to God to save him. Have you ever thought how weak that must sound in a way to David's band of mighty men? 
You know, they say, what's the plan, David? Saul's on his way to kill us. And David says, well, my plan is to let someone else rescue us. It's the ultimate non-macho stance, isn't it? Somebody else is going to do it. I'm going to get God to rescue us. But it's the right stance, isn't it? It's the position that we're always in. We are always the one in that situation who needs rescuing. And it's God who does the saving. That's actually the right way around, isn't it? That's the position that we're in. But how often do we turn to God when crisis comes? I think probably we get there in the end, most of us, don't we? But it seems as though David goes there to start with. Crisis, talk to God. And there's no flowery language here, is there? There's no get my life straight in order first. It's just straight to God. Oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Rescue me. But how does he expect God to save him? Well, there's this wonderful thing called Hebrew parallelism. It's a bit of a long word, but it basically means the two lines, you're supposed to read them together. So he says, oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Those two ideas, the name and the might, are meant to be held together. That's how he's expecting to be rescued. Now, God's name isn't just Yahweh, isn't just the Lord. It's to do with his reputation. It's to do with his public profile, if you like. And primarily in the Bible, it it reminds us of, of Exodus, where God is displaying his name. His name is going to be known among the nations. God there is known as the God who rescues his people from the most powerful men in the world. That's what God's name is. So no wonder here that David links it with his might. His power, his strength. Because David's not trusting in his own might. David's not trusting in his men's might. He's trusting in God's might. Just reminds me of when David stands before Goliath. You'll see on the back of your notice sheet there are some verses there. Uh, which we'll look at. 1 Samuel 17, uh, 45 to 47, or 46 here. Then David said to the Philistine, Goliath, you come at me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of Israel, whom, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. You see, even right back then, even when he was a young man, even when he was facing Goliath, he trusted in God's might. He trusted in God's name, in his reputation among the nations as a saviour, as a rescuer. And this is no different here. He's trusting in God's might, in his name. But where do we go in times of trouble? I said that we get to God in the end, but where do we go first? Is it our spouse? Is it our family? Is it our bank? Is it despair? Is that where we go? Or panic? Well, David here goes to God. He goes to God's might. Not in the things that he could trust in in his own life, but God's. Now, it's not wrong to go to those things, maybe except for despair and panic. But do we really believe that those things will rescue us? Or do we believe that God is our rescuer? If we believe that God is our rescuer, then we should go to him first and be like David and pray to him. And we see secondly here that there are prayers for petition. He moves on in his prayer. So verse 2. Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. 
David offers a prayer of petition to God. What does he ask for? Well, he asks that God would hear his prayer. That sounds a bit of a strange thing, really. Uh, it's not really on the top of most people's prayer list, is it? What, do you, what are you going to pray for, David? Well, I pray that God would hear my prayer. But David understands his position before God. He's not a victim of prayer entitlement, if you like. What I mean by that is that he understands that God is under no obligations to him. He may be God's chosen king in waiting, but he's not entitled. God has made promises to us, hasn't he, that he didn't make to David. We've got wonderful promises. Uh, So think of John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in my father sorry ask the father in my name he may give it to you we've got wonderful promises haven't we of answered prayer but david didn't have a promise like that david was going to god uh, without the, the new testament if you like in his hand now we have promises that say that god will answer our prayers does that mean then that we can, promote, can go to God presumptuously? Can we just approach God and say, you know, Oi, God, you've said this. Well, no. We can approach God boldly, the scriptures say, but not presumptuously. Because with presumption, you think that that person owes you something. God doesn't owe us anything. God is never in our debt. Whatever promises he's made, we are still always in his debt. So think for a second. Imagine that you're a a younger person, perhaps, and your parents offer to buy you a car. That would be be good, wouldn't it? Good situation to be in. Uh, Could you imagine, though, if, if they hadn't offered, how would you ask them to buy a car? I imagine that you would, you know, approach tentatively and say, yeah, um, I was just wondering if possibly you, you might be able to, you know, possibly buy me a car. That would be, be very good. So that's probably how I would approach uh, my parents. You wouldn't go up to them and say, right, you need to buy me a car. That would be presumption, wouldn't it, to go to them. But imagine now that they had offered to buy you the car. Does that mean you change how you ask when the time comes? Do you, you know, change how you ask? Well, no, you still go up and say, you know you said you'd buy me a car? Well, I'm asking that you buy me that car. You wouldn't go and say, oi, you said you'd buy me a car last year and you haven't done it. That's presumption, isn't it? You see, in both cases, you are not in their debt. You are in their debt. They are the one who's making gracious promises. So I want to ask, do we ask God to hear our prayers? Or do we come presumptuously and name it and claim it? Oi God, I want this. Do it this way and this. Now again, we're good evangelicals, aren't we? We don't say that out loud. We just moan inwardly when we don't get what we've asked for. That's the way we know we're asking presumptuously. Whether we've asked for guidance or a partner or a job. We presume that God owes us and we have a right to it. But God doesn't owe anyone. So are we asking in the right way? And what about when trouble hits? This is the context of the psalm, isn't it? Do we presume that we have the right to rescue? Do we presume it's God's job to get us out of trouble? If we go in with an entitlement attitude, then we'll be asking in entirely the wrong way. 
Yes, we can ask God to remind, uh, to, sorry, we can remind God of his promises. But we're not going to do that in an insubordinate way, are we? God is not our rescue genie. He's not bound to us as master to do his bidding. When we pray to God in trouble, we must do so humbly, remembering our position before God. Now, if we ask in the wrong way, he might still answer. God is gracious, isn't he? But it's still the right way to ask, isn't it? Not coming presumptuously. David asked God to hear his prayer. And then the third thing we see in this section is that David has perspective on enemies. Have a look at the first part of verse 3. The strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. Look at how he betrayed, look at how he describes those who betrayed him and seek his life. Ruthless men. The word there has to do with fear and dread. Those who inspire fear in other people. You can see why David and his men are concerned. These are not uh, pushovers, are they, that are coming after him. And these men have no care of who David is. No care of whether he's innocent or not. They're ruthless. They inspire fear, ungodly fear in the people that they're going after. And then he says that they're strangers. <coughs> Excuse me. Strangers. Literally, it means foreigners. That's the word. Uh, foreigners. Now, if you think about the context, that's a little bit odd, isn't it? Because they're not foreigners, are they? They're actually of his own country. And in fact, they're even of his own clan. They're from just down the road. If, it, if this was our context here, we'd be saying they're not only Englishmen, but they're Yorkshiremen. They're from our own county. The people we're expecting to support us. But David sees through all this, doesn't it? Doesn't he? They may be his countrymen, but they're not on the same side. They may be of the same clan, but they're not of the same stuff, are they? They're foreigners and strangers to him. They've shown it by their actions towards him. (coughs) Really, they're acting as though they're not part of his country, not part of his people. You know, sometimes we need to take a step back when we've been betrayed, don't we? Because when we've been betrayed, it's because we're expecting somebody to support us. We're expecting somebody to be kind to us. And sometimes we need to take a step back and think, was that really all that likely? David sees that these Ziphites would never support him. Sometimes situations like this show you who really is on your side, which people are really with you. David certainly knew where he stood with them now, didn't he? And now Saul and his men are on the way. Now this psalm jumps forward then, as though these events have already happened, looking forward to afterwards. And we're going to jump and miss the bit in the middle and come back to it at the end. We're going to move on to when trouble goes. Verses 5 to 7. Let me just read to you at verse 5. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness put an end to them. What we're going to do now as we go through the second half of the psalm is we're going to revisit those same points that we looked at, but in reverse. It's sort of pointing us towards the middle, which is why we're going to look at it at the end. But just as he finished about talking about his enemies, so this time he starts talking about his enemies. Now, this verse 5 sounds a little bit strange, doesn't it, I think, into our ears. It sounds a little bit unchristian, doesn't it? Talking about evil coming on his enemies. And it's sort of half prayer, half statement. Do you notice that? He he sort of just says, he will return evil to my enemies. 
in your faithfulness put an end to them. He's sort of saying God will do this, but he's sort of asking for it as well. He's sort of saying, God, you will do this, so do it. But why? What is he doing here? Well, really, it's a call for justice, isn't it? Remember how he's described his enemies. His enemies are those ruthless men seeking his life without cause. What he's expressing here is faith in God's justice, in the God of justice. He will not repay uh, evil. David won't repay evil with evil because he knows that God will repay evil for evil. And this is often the reason given in scripture for not taking revenge. Because God is our judge, not us. God will act. And this is what David believes here. He's asking God to be just. He's asking God to step in. So when we've been betrayed, when we've been hurt, we don't need to seek revenge. It might be tempting, but God is on the case. There will be justice. The only reason we want to take revenge in those cases is if we believe that this life was all there is. If we believe that God wasn't a God of justice and will bring justice. (coughs) God will do justice and that's what David believes. So he offers prayers of thanks, verse 6. With a free will offering I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. Just as David is confident of the justice, of God's justice, and the rescue, so he's confident in his response as well. He will offer free will sacrifices, not the prescribed sacrifices, not the ones they had to do over and over again. Extra ones, more than required. In the New Testament, our equivalent, if you like, is we take our bodies and offer them as living sacrifices to God. We sing in that hymn, don't we, take my life, transform, renew and change me. That I might be a living sacrifice. That's the New Testament version of the free will offering. Jesus sacrifices, he has dealt with our sin. And we do this in response. And he gives thanks to God, doesn't he? His name, O Lord, for it is good. And everyone who's been reading the Psalms and, 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 and looking up to this wants to go, for its steadfast love endures forever. It's one of those things, you know, you start the line and you finish it off. It's like when a song comes on the radio and then someone switches it off, you sort of carry on singing. It's shorthand for all those psalms where he's talking about his steadfast love enduring forever. He's saying, I I know you, God, you're a a rescuer and your love will endure forever. And do you see then how this matches with the prayer of petition? For every prayer of petition, for every time we ask God for something, there needs to be one of thankfulness for when it's answered. How often do we forget to say thank you to God when we have answered prayer? I think it's just partly as human beings, we just forget to say thank you, don't we? We've been teaching our children to try and say thank you to people. Um, we were on the bus a few weeks ago, we were saying, you know, you need to say thank you to the bus driver. You know, because that's what we do, isn't it? Uh, and Calvin, my son, went up and said, you know, thank you for the lift. <laughs> <laughs> Had to explain, explain to him that's not how you say thank you and it wasn't quite a lift. But if you think about it, if we thank the bus driver for just doing his job, shouldn't we thank God for his graciousness towards us? So we need to give thanks to God. We need to thank him for answered prayer. And we need to offer our lives as living sacrifices to him. That's the right response. And David knows that that's what he'll do. But why can David be so confident of this? 
Well, we see it there in verse 7. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. God has a track record. God has been there for him again and again. If you get time this week, just have a look, just have a glance through 1 Samuel. David's in trouble from his enemies. God rescues him. David's in trouble from family. God rescues him. David gets himself into trouble and gets someone's wife into trouble as well. Even in his stupid sinfulness, God rescues him. David knows that God knows how to save. And David was a soldier. He risked his life every day in God's service. It said that Saul was after him every day. He knows that God can rescue. He's been in battle. Every sword swung at his chest, every arrow aimed at his head, every stab aimed at his back. How many countless times was that happening in a battle? God has rescued him. God has saved him. Why? Why is is God for David and against his enemies? We find out in that little middle section. That's the, the sort of turning point of the psalm. When God steps in. The end of verse 3 and verse 4. Let me read them to you. I'll read the whole of verse 3 actually. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Behold God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. This lies at the heart of the psalm. Right in the middle. All those things that were moving in. Come towards this little middle section. This is what makes the difference for the whole psalm. What is it about David's enemies that mean that they're enemies of God? Well, they don't set God before themselves. They don't set God before themselves. In all their dealings with David, they haven't factored God in. They're not concerned with what God wants. They're just concerned with what they want. They're just concerned with keeping in with Saul, perhaps. God here is not a factor in their lives. Sure, on paper they're Israelites. Sure, Saul thanks them in the name of the Lord. But in the end, that's all they are, paper worshippers. They have something else before their eyes, don't they? Might be career, might be influence, might be money, might be glory. And maybe God is in there somewhere in the mix, but he's not set before them. He's not before their eyes. I don't know if you've seen um, those sort of Google glasses you can get, or the sort of virtual reality things now. You can get what's called enhanced reality, which I think sounds a little bit scary. Uh, But you put these glasses on, and it sort of shows you things in the corner of your eye, and you sort of get your email on one eye, and, you know, they're advising you not to drive with them on. Uh, I can see why. But sort of enhanced reality, you know, you'd be able to see, you know, like on Google Maps, where things just pop up and tells you it's a business there, you'll be able to see it in your eyes. Well, the picture here is is more that, but having God in your eyes. Not to blind you, but so that you can see clearly. Having God before you all the time, remembering that God is there. Where does your brain go to when it's in neutral? Does it go to God, or does it go somewhere else? What about when you daydream? Do you daydream of the things of God, or other things? That's how we can see that we're setting God before ourselves, is what our thoughts are all the way through the day. Of course we have to do other things. Of course there are other things in our lives. But God is there. He wasn't there for these people. They didn't have God before themselves. 
But God is behind David. God is behind David. He's his helper. Do you see that there? Behold, God is my helper. The same word that's used for Eve in Genesis. It's as though David's not complete without God. Just as Adam wasn't complete without Eve. David needs God's help. David has this God as his helper as well. The God who rescues. He's had this God before his eyes. But he's had God behind him, helping him, protecting him. Now in the story you might think it's Jonathan that's alongside him, helping him. But it's not, it's God. Can you imagine that God as our helper? There's that general myth in our society, isn't there, that when someone dies, no matter who they are, that they're sort of watching over you. Do you know the truth is far more amazing? If you're a Christian here this morning, God himself is watching over you as your helper. God is there for us, behind us. And we see then that the Lord upholds his life. The word there switches to to Lord, sort of looking forward to verse 6 with the, the Lord Yahweh. Not some sort of distant deity. The Lord who rescues his people. It's showing you here that God holds David's life in his hands. So it's not Saul. It's not the Ziphites. God holds his life. God is there holding him. Keeping him safe. It's a bit like that game where, do you ever play that game where somebody has to stand behind you? And you sort of have to lean back. And, and they hold you. It's as though God is holding him. Or if you remember the Bible story where uh, Moses has his hands in the air. And there's people each side of him holding up his hands. It's like that. God is supporting us, upholding our lives. And if you're a Christian here this morning, that's true for you. God is your helper. He is behind you, even when you don't feel like he is. God is your upholder. He will not let you fall when trouble comes. He will not betray you, even when your own people do. And this is the massive truth at the centre of this psalm. God upholds his people. God holds their future in his hands. So there's no need to fear. There's no need to be anxious. Because who do we have behind us? God. Even when it looks like we're falling, he won't let us fall. So David is confident of the future. Even if his betrayers win this battle, they will not have won the war. God is behind him. And one day there'll be payback. And isn't this the attitude that Jesus had? As we think about the psalm as a whole, he had God before his eyes. He had God behind him. He was betrayed by Judas, yes. We'll come to that when we look at friends in a few weeks' time. But he was betrayed by his own countrymen as well, wasn't he? He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Or Acts 2, 36. Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you you crucified. His own countrymen betrayed him. And yet, what does it say in Scripture 1 Peter 2, 23? When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And Jesus is the ultimate embodiment of this psalm, isn't he? 
God heard his prayer and rescued him from the grave. If we're trusting in Jesus, then we too will face ultimate rescue from the grave. The defeat of our biggest enemies, sin and death. So we can live as living sacrifices because of the mercy shown in him. We can thank him with our lives and with our prayers. We can remember his death in our place. And we can forgive when we're betrayed because we're forgiven. So when we are betrayed, even by believers, we can uh, look to that final judgment. Uh, Sorry, when we're betrayed by believers, we cannot look to the final judgment, can we? Because Jesus has paid the price. But we can look to forgiveness, can't we? We who've been betrayed need to uh, have been offered forgiveness, haven't we? So how can we bear grudges? How can we not forgive when we've been forgiven so much? Betrayal is hard. But in our nature, all of us are betrayers. All of us turned our back on Christ at some point in our life. But Jesus offers us forgiveness. We're going to share in a few moments' time a meal that reminds us of his betrayal. But it also reminds us of the forgiveness that he offered. But before that, we're going to sing a song that reminds us of the cross. The greatest act of betrayal, in one sense. But also the greatest act of love. In the face of that that this world has ever known. Let's stand and sing, Man of Sorrows, Lamb of God. <laughs>